uh, to the end of this series in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 31. We will, uh, we will read the whole chapter. Um, and uh, some of you at the sound of that begin to panic. Um, so it is our practice to stand when we read God's word. This is, I will recognize an entire chapter, but it is 18 verses. Uh, if you're able... Uh, Would you please stand as we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Exodus 31, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, uh, and all the, it's the furnishings of the tent, the tabernacle and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations is a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would use this, your word. Teach us, grow us, and more importantly, conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name and for his sake that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I was um, struck this week uh, by sort of in, in study and preparing for this sermon, I was struck by a, a reality I see in myself and in others that um, I don't know. In many ways, I guess is obvious and and shouldn't surprise us. Sorry, something got in my eye like right um, while we were singing. Uh, something that probably should be obvious to all of us, and we we all know it and recognize it, and maybe because it's so obvious, we don't recognize it. We don't really acknowledge it. Um, but there are parts of the Bible that we can read eagerly, hanging on every word, intrigued by everything in it. 
details that we can really kind of get caught up in and realities and connections and things that, that just consume us and we get all excited. And then we can read other parts that we decide that's too much. That God right there is too far. The reality is this passage has both. This passage has parts that which we can sort of hang on to and get excited about and, and hunger for and, and eager to know and to understand and then follow it right back up with a passage that we just want to say, you know what, God, you're asking too much now. You're, you're expecting too much of us and this really is just difficult and oppressive and it just isn't fair. That somehow the, the God of grace who saves unworthy sinners suddenly became an ogre. But that's how we react. That's how we respond to God's Word. The Bible has been laying out now for, for six chapters. God has been... Um, obviously, God didn't speak in chapters, right? We recognize this. But, but for six chapters now, seven chapters, um, God has been giving to Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle. Here are all the things that you are supposed to make and how they're supposed to be made, you know, exactly what it's supposed to look like. And he's been, been working his way, literally started back in chapter 25. And now in chapter 31, we kind of come to the end of those instructions. Nothing's been built yet. No, no hammer has touched wood. There's no nail. There's no screwdriver. There's no drill. There's no sound of saws going anywhere. This is just purely giving Moses the detailed instructions for what is to be built and how it is to be made. Well, this chapter, and, and you, you see them all. I mean, in fact, we, we went through the list. And, and I hope that you could almost, um, as you read through some of these verses in chapter 31... Um, verse 7 through 10, you could almost walk back through the past chapters. Or you could almost walk from the most holy place out to the entrance of the courtyard and, and look as you passed each item within the tabernacle itself. Everything's been clearly given to Moses from God. This is what you're going to make and this is how... You are going to make it. And reiterated in this passage twice is something we've seen several times already before. In verse 6, for example, they shall make all that I have commanded you. Or down in verse 11, uh, all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And we're reminded that the earthly tabernacle is a... Uh, is patterned after the heavenly tabernacle. It's patterned after the, the spiritual reality. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 gives us almost that exact language that, that what was on earth was merely a copy, a shadow of the tabernacle as it is where God actually dwells. And so we find that God has revealed what is to be made and how it is to made and in how it is to be made and in this chapter he tells us by whom and when so all the questions we might possibly have about the tabernacle get answered what is it that that all that the people of Israel are supposed to make uh, how are they to make it and now here who is supposed to do the making who is supposed to be 
the one building all of these things? Who's overseeing this project? And I'm reminded that I uh, recognize that there is, I'm sure, a difference between an architect and an engineer, uh, an interior designer and an interior decorator. I'm sure there are places where those jobs all kind of blend a little bit. And I'm sure there are places where some are supposed to do one thing and somebody else is supposed to do something different. And you have echoes of that in the first part of chapter 31. That, that there are people who design, there are people that create, there are people that plan, and then they hand those plans to someone else and say, now you go and make this real. You go and take this, which I've drawn on paper, and you turn it into an actual thing that we can go inside of. And that's these two people in chapter 31. God has has called Bezalel to execute what God has designed. And quite honestly, what only God can design. We've we've even mentioned along the way that that nowhere, and, and in fact even here in this passage, nowhere are any of the workers given license to say, well, this, this is really too small. We should make it bigger. This, is, this bowl is too shallow. We should make it deeper. Uh, the walls of the tent are too tall. We should make them shorter. They're too dark. We should make them lighter. Nowhere does anyone get that freedom. And we see the same thing here in chapter 31. Notice that Bezalel has um, gifts and abilities He apparently could have had his own show on HGTV. Um, Design, build, decorate by Bezalel. I don't know what it would look like. I don't know what you call that on HGTV. But he doesn't get to exercise any of those. He has the the creative ability. He has the creativity. He's not allowed to exercise that. He has the gifts and the skill. But he's not allowed to use those. Because he doesn't get to design. He doesn't get to create. He merely, in fact, we see in verse 3. Verse 3 is an interesting verse. and, and, And because of the way we sort of operate, um, for us, wisdom is is purely a mental exercise. But the word ability in verse 3 is actually the same Hebrew word as wisdom. Uh, for them, wisdom isn't purely mental. It manifests itself in life. It manifests itself. It, it shows up in the things that we do and the way that we do them. And so... Bezalel is given all this skill, all this ability to create, to devise artistic designs, verse 4. And yet, he's given very specific pattern, do this, and exactly this, and nothing other than this. Bezalel has help. He has a holy ab. Um, notice that there we have a little bit of their uh, genealogies. Uh, Bezalel is the son of Uri, the son of Hur. Presumably, we don't know, 
But presumably that's the her that helped hold up Moses' hands back in chapter 17, maybe? Uh, presumably that's that her. Now we don't, we aren't, we don't know for certain. Um, and, and the reality is that, that he's only, uh, the only other time he's mentioned is in a genealogy in First Chronicles 2. Aholiab is, is not mentioned anywhere else. But I do want you to notice something about their tribes. In verse 2, we're told that Bezalel is from the tribe of Judah. We're told that Aholiab, verse 6, is from the tribe of Dan. And, and perhaps you're thinking, okay, and? Like, why does that even matter? Why is that a big deal? Well, it may not, except that in Numbers 2, when Israel is given instructions for packing up and moving to their next location, everybody lives in a tent. God lives in a tent. They can pack up, they can move. And when the cloud, when the pillar of fire moves, Israel packs up, they take all their stuff and they move and they go until the cloud stops again and that's where they're to set up camp. When they do, Judah goes first, Dan goes last. In other words, this may very well be a Hebrew way of saying from first to last, from from everything that is to be built, but it also may be that these two men represent all of Israel. That there are other people involved in the work, that it's not simply just the two of them, but that they represent everybody in Israel who will participate. They, they sort of represent all the tribes of, of Israel. Bezalel has been filled with the Spirit of God. You know, we have this, we have this um, notion that somehow the Spirit doesn't exist, that the third person of the Trinity doesn't exist or do anything until Acts 2 and Pentecost. And yet right here, well, we, I mean, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is at work in creation. So you get two verses in and you're introduced to the Spirit before you're introduced to the Son, so there's that. But here, the Spirit fills endows him with this this wisdom and ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship. It's the work of the Spirit to give Bezalel these gifts, these abilities. Interestingly enough, this is the first time we've seen that phrase. So far, we're, we're Exodus 31, and the first person we are ever told is filled with the Spirit. It's not Noah. It's not Moses. It's not Abraham. It's not a prophet. It's not somebody with speaking gifts. It's an artist. It's a craftsman. Some of you are like looking down on non-artists right now. Me. Can't draw stick figures. And so Bezalel is given these gifts, these abilities that reflect wisdom that are a gift from the Spirit of God to him in order to be able to carry out these, this work, this assignment of building the tabernacle for, for the Jew, for the Israelite. Wisdom is a heart issue. Ability is a heart issue, not just a mental 
issue. This, by the way, will come up in our reading of Gentle and Lowly this summer. For There's that for a teaser. So God puts skill into the hearts of his people in order for them to be able to do that to which they are called. The reality is we are all given gifts and skills and abilities. We're all designed exactly the way God wants to design us. And our calling is to use those skills, whatever they may be, However jealous of other people's gifts you might be, that's a different sermon altogether. But to use those gifts, those abilities for his honor and his glory. And the reality is that also paints a picture for us of our need for each other. Isn't that the picture of the church? Like if, if any one person had everything he possibly needed in and of himself and all gifts, all abilities, whatever... We wouldn't need each other. But the reality is this, this reminds us yet again that, that the gifts and abilities that we have, we have because God has given them to us and we're to use them for his honor and glory. Notice, I mean, did you notice the list of things he can do in verses 4 and 5? Okay, so I know a guy. He's... um. He's been a ruling elder at uh, a couple of different PCA churches, uh, serves on the board of a um, well-respected, uh, world-renowned seminary. He has served on the board. I assume he's still on the board. He, um, he's, an, uh, he's, a, he's a cancer surgeon. He has a kiln in his garage. He has a small vineyard in his backyard and makes wine. Uh, last time I played golf with him, he was easily a single-digit handicap. I, I know he got down to a three when he was in medical school. Um, don't you just want to smack people? Oh, he plays instruments and was a junior Olympian. Table tennis. That sounds like a holy, I mean, like Bezalel in verses four and five. Literally, he can work with anything, right? He has, he's been filled with the spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, knowledge, all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold. He can design it and then he can implement it. What material? Doesn't matter. Gold, silver, bronze, wood, stone. I can do it all. And God's given him those gifts to work in any medium, any craft, in order to execute the plans that God has given him. We're told by whom the tabernacle is to be made. But we're also told when the tabernacle is to be made. Nothing's actually been made yet. I've already mentioned that there's no, there are no saws. I mean, this is, in fact, is Moses is still on the mountain meeting with God. And we've, we've lost track of that sense of time. We've lost track of that sort of passage of time. Just how long Moses been, has been up on the mountain for weeks 
meeting with God, getting instructions, and, and he hasn't even come back down yet. And he finally gets the tablets of stone, the two tablets of testimony that he will carry down. And nothing's going to be built until chapter 35. You're not going to hear a saw until chapter 35. And these instructions began in 25. And it seems odd, perhaps even out of place, that God would, would bring back up the Sabbath at the end of all of that. Because you do realize we, we, we've seen the Sabbath principle and gotten some instruction, at least implied, that, that there would be a, such a thing as a Sabbath back in chapter 16 when God gave his people manna. And he said, look, there's, there's one day. You, you're not allowed to collect two days worth of manna. You go out every single morning, you collect your manna, and if you, anything that stays in your house overnight is going to rot. Except on Friday. The day before the Sabbath, you can collect double because when you go out on Sabbath morning to find and collect manna, there's not going to be any. It won't be there. And so you plan and prepare the day before so that you're not working on the seventh, the seventh day, the Sabbath day. Now, it may very well be the case that the Sabbath, because of its connection to the tabernacle and the work of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, that it makes sense to reiterate the Sabbath here. We saw it again in the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. Or it may be that this actually places a limit on Bezalel and Aholiab. Could you imagine for just a second, you're two dudes in all of Israel, in all of this camp, and you've been given gifts, abilities, skills, craftsmanship, creativity. You can work with everything. And, and, and God says, these are the two guys that are going to build the tower. You can imagine the pressure they would feel. Got to get this done. If they're almost Western American at this point, right? Like, I can't... Stop. I can't not work. And I have got to make sure that this tabernacle gets built. And God comes right on the heels of all of the tabernacle instruction. What is it? To, what's to be made? How is it to be made? By whom is it to be made? And puts a limit. And says you have six days a week that you can work. Think of the. Think of the ways that we. Could say, but. I mean, okay, Moses, look, I know I'm not supposed to work on the seventh day. I know I'm supposed to take the Sabbath off. But this is the tabernacle. Like, this is the most important building in all of Israelite camp layout. Like, surely, if I'm supposed to break the Sabbath commandment, surely it's to build the tabernacle. And God comes along and says, you're building the tabernacle, but you're going to build it and still honor the day that I have set aside for your rest. They have six days that they can work. And, and that's repeated multiple times in this passage. We've seen it numerous times uh, throughout uh, Genesis and Exodus, for that matter. Six days that they can work, but the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is a day of holy rest to the Lord. And that day takes precedence, even over something as important and significant as building the tabernacle. God's giving 
Bezalel and Aholiab, not just permission, but commandment to say, look, I know you're building the tabernacle, but you're still going to take one day a week off from that work. Twice we're told in this passage that whoever does work on the Sabbath will be cut off from his people, will be put to death. It's a capital punishment. Six days of work, one day of rest. Our pattern, our week, our regular sort of work week is patterned after God's creation. That's the model given here. There's a reminder, verse 7, I mean, verse 17, that in six days God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested. You can go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the first four verses of chapter 2, and get that Sabbath principle. But did you notice? This day is a sign. It's actually a sign of of a couple of things according to this passage. Because if you notice in verse 13, God says, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Do you remember why God delivered Israel? It wasn't just to free them from slavery. And it's not even necessarily exactly to take them to the promised land, although that's that's part of it. We've we've mentioned along the way that one of the reasons that God brought Israel out of Egypt was so that they might be with him and he with them to fulfill that that promise made to Abraham so that so that God may be may dwell with his people. But he also, the other sort of purpose is so that Israel will know that he is the Lord and that other nations will know that he is the Lord. Well, did you hear the sign? Did you hear the the, that exact principle sort of alluded to in verse 13? So that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I'm the one that word is the same word as the word for holy. I'm the one that makes you holy. I'm the one that that sets you apart from everyone else. You know, the reality is, as a as a Western American, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of world in which we live. We would do well to remember that we are not sovereign, that we are not in control. We've even sort of mentioned over the years that that there are two things you do every single day, presumably, that remind you that you are not God. One is you sleep. You see, when you sleep, you're not holding up the world. You're not making sure that your bank account is going the right way, that your IRA is gaining money and not losing it. You're not out making sure that your yard is doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be doing. You are not out there controlling all those things that you feel like when you're awake. You have to control. And when you pray, you admit, I don't have the wisdom or the power. Well, we can add something to the list. Keeping the Sabbath day says... The world doesn't revolve around me. And and all those things that I think are so important and so invaluable and, and that I have to do and make sure and the stress and the pressure that I feel to uphold certain things, 
They depend on God. And so when I rest, I'm reminding myself and the world around me that I'm really not in control. And God says, look, this is this day is a sign between me and you that you will know that I'm the one who sanctifies you. I'm the one who is at work in you. But then there's a second sign given. And this is new. In verse 17. Sign between me uh, forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested that we know. And was refreshed. Wait, I thought God was infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness. The, the shorter catechism. Learn the shorter catechism. It is a great tool for learning and understanding. God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being means this. He doesn't get tired. What? It means a whole bunch of other things. But it also means he doesn't... So you come in from doing yard work. And you're hot and you're sweaty and you crash in your chair and you immediately regret it. Because you know good and well that you need a shower. And you're not likely to get out of that chair to go take that shower anytime soon. Why? Because it feels so good to sit down. God doesn't need refreshing like that. He doesn't lose energy. He doesn't get, you know, sapped of all. He doesn't need to drink a glass of water to sort of to be rehydrated. He doesn't need coffee in the morning to get waked up. God doesn't need refreshing. And yet, somehow, the Sabbath day was a day of refreshment, even for God. The picture is that the Lord's day should be a day of rest and refreshment for his people. A day not that we find oppressive and difficult, but one that we find where we get to leave sort of the, the daily lives behind and give the whole day to God and honor him with our calendar, with our schedule, that we might be refreshed. Imagine how much good we could do ourselves. Our mental anxiety, heart disease, the, the possible effects that keeping the Sabbath day could have on us. Because there's one day a week when we get to say none of those things matter. Because those things only matter in this life. But this time spent with God and his people matters in this and in the life to come. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. And, and the first couple we're going to dwell on a little more uh, thoroughly in a few weeks, Lord willing. Um, but let me make this sort of point now. Uh, the first is uh, God gives gifts to his people and we're called to use those gifts, those abilities for his honor and his glory. A second uh, application. Um, and, and this is sort of an aside, and this, this may also get, get more treatment in a few weeks. Um, but have, have you ever noticed how you talk about Christian artists? Like you don't talk about Christian doctors or Christian architects or Christian home builders the way you talk about Christian artists. Like you're happy for your doctor to be a Christian, but you don't really need him to be a Christian doctor. 
You're happy for the guy that builds your home to be a Christian, but you don't really need him to be a Christian builder. You just need him to be really good at building stuff so that your house won't fall on your head. And then we talk about artists. And we expect them to be Christian artists. As though, as though somehow that changes their art. It changes their creativity. To steal, to paraphrase from one commentator, Christian is a noun, not really an adjective. We want people who are Christians in the arts and really good at it, at good at design and creating and, and making things that I couldn't for anything in the world possibly make. But we need to be consistent in the way we use our language. We don't necessarily look for a Christian doctor or a Christian builder. We're happy for our builder to be a Christian. We're happy for our artist to be Christian. But Christian is a noun and not an adjective. A third application. Uh, God's word regulates our time. God's word, God's revealed will regulates our calendar. We think of the fourth commandment as oppressive. We think of the fourth commandment as God being an ogre. Suddenly the God of grace has become difficult and he doesn't like his people and he's demanding a day and that's just too much. I'll give him as much as I have to, um, but as little as I have to. I'll give as much as I feel like I can, but as little as I possibly must. As just, just as little as I can. I'll give him a morning. How about that? We'll, we'll call it a morning. I'll go to church the rest of the day is for me to do as I see fit. We think of the fourth commandment as oppressive. Who is the commandment given to? Who's the, the first audience to hear this language? It's people who don't know what a day off is. It's people who have worked 24-7, 365 for who knows how many years under a regime that wouldn't let them have a day off. And suddenly they are given, they are commanded by God to take 52 holidays a year. They don't think of it as oppressive. They think of it as refreshing, as relief, as generous, as gracious. Our problem is we want to control our calendars just like we want to control everything else. And so we feel the need to, um, to complain when God wants a whole day that somehow we want a day to ourselves as though working four or five days a week and taking Saturday to play on the lake is somehow now I get to do what I want on Sunday. You know, you can't help but wonder what we could do to now look, I, I get it. There are realities I and mean, there are effects of sin on our bodies and that includes our brains. So I'm not I'm not saying more than you hear me say, but you wonder what we could do to anxiety medication companies if we actually just kept the calendar that God told us to keep. What could we do for for Lipitor if we kept the calendar that God <coughs> told us to keep to relieve ourselves from the stress and strain and pressure to work hard and play harder and and we actually took one day off every seven to God's honor and glory you wonder if keeping the Lord's Day among Christians wouldn't alter the health and happiness of God's people 
May God grant to us a love for this day above all others. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, you have given us uh, one day every single week uh, that we devote to you, that we devote to our own physical, emotional, spiritual, mental rest and refreshment. Father, we pray that you would so work in us that we would long for that day. We would seek uh, to desire that day above all others, that it would be a delight and a joy to us and that we would schedule our week around it and that you would use it exactly for that. But we also pray that the other six days of the week, that as we labor, as we use the gifts and abilities that you've given to us, we would use them to the honor and glory of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.